Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, thanks for tuning in to a new episode of Talking France. This week, we'll explore whether Paris is a safe city to visit right now, what exactly are France's notorious bon lieu, and whether they deserve their bad reputation. And we'll also look at some of the biggest cliches about the French to see whether there's any truth to them. We've got the lowdown on France's latest cheese battle. And if you are spending Christmas or New Year in the country, we'll explore how the French do the festive season. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and I'll be joined by the team at the local Emma Pearson, Jen Mansfield and politics expert John Litchfield. Firstly, thanks to listeners who've submitted a question for our team, which we will try and answer in a special New Year's episode of Talking France. So keep an eye out for that over the festive season. Let's crack straight on. We'll start by talking about Paris because people are once again asking the question whether the French capital is a safe place to visit. That's because of a shocking and sadly familiar incident at the weekend. Emma, start by telling us what happened. Well, over the weekend on Saturday night, a German tourist in Paris was fatally stabbed and two other people, one of them a 66-year-old British tourist and the other a Frenchman in his 60s, were injured by a man who launched an attack with a knife and a hammer in the area around the Eiffel Tower. The attacker is a 24-year-old Frenchman. He was born in the Paris suburbs to Iranian parents and he was subsequently revealed to be a radical Islamist who had sworn allegiance to Islamic State. He had been jailed for a failed terror plot in 2016, but he'd also been suffering from severe mental health problems. The man is in custody and the investigations are continuing, but at this stage it appears that he acted alone. So Emma, readers uh, have once again been posing the question, is it safe to come to Paris? As I alluded to earlier, what's the answer? Do we have an answer? Well, yeah, I mean, this was obviously a shocking attack and naturally people are worried about it. As I said, investigations are still continuing, but there is no suggestion that this man specifically targeted tourists. In fact, he told investigators that he chose the area around the Eiffel Tower for its symbolism, but that his targets were random. But I mean, Paris, as you said, has seen several high profile attacks since 2015, particularly the November 15 attacks at the Bataclan and other venues in the city in which 137 people died. Since then, it does seem like the profile of attacks has changed. Instead of the sort of big coordinated attacks like the Bataclan, we're more likely to see attacks like what happened at the weekend. A lone attacker, unsophisticated, usually using a knife or DIY tools, carrying out random acts of violence in public places. The attackers themselves are often young men, sometimes with mental health problems, who've been radicalised online. And terrorism experts say that this is quite typical of the declining influence of groups like Islamic State, that they don't really have the capability for these very organised attacks anymore. And I think it is worth pointing out that terror attacks in France have never been confined to Paris. You know, we've seen big scale attacks in other cities like the one in Nice and also several smaller scale attacks uh, in Paris suburbs, as well as in Marseille and Lyon and in small towns like Arras in the northeast of the country. So I don't think there's particularly a higher risk in Paris than elsewhere. And at present, no countries are warning their nationals against visiting France because of the terror threat. Okay, so terrorism, thankfully, a rare event. What about other more general risks to visitors to Paris, Emma? 
I mean, Paris is a big city and obviously it has crime, just like any other capital city. When it comes to tourists, however, by far the biggest risk is to property rather than to personal safety. Pickpocketing is a problem in several areas. There are also scams that target tourists. I mean, as you would expect, crime is concentrated in the biggest French cities like Paris, Marseille, Lyon. However, most violent crime is between people who know each other. So like domestic family violence, fights, gang violence, physical attacks on tourists are very rare throughout France. Mm, you mentioned pickpockets there. There are stories of, you know, police tackling gangs of pickpockets on the Paris metro, for example. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, pickpocketing is, is a real problem, um, especially around tourist sites and on certain parts of the public transport network. Uh, Gare du Nord station is a notorious trouble spot and you'll often hear announcements on the metro warning you to watch out for pickpockets as you're going through certain areas or on certain lines. I mean, as with all cities, you know, the best advice is just to keep your valuables like a wallet in a zip pocket or a bag that you can keep an eye on, be aware of your surroundings, especially on the metro if you're standing in front of the carriage door people often like reach in snatch stuff and run off there are also scams and these often do specifically target tourists sometimes maybe pickpockets will like approach you with a map and distract you while they pick your pocket they might be claiming to sell tickets for transport or other tourist attractions one thing i think is worth is mentioning is taxis unlicensed taxi drivers target places like the main stations and the airports and every couple of years there are stories of some poor tourists who are fleeced and charged something insane like 200 quid for a ride into Paris from the airport. Licensed Paris taxi drivers are forbidden to solicit for customs. So if someone comes up to you and offers you a taxi ride, they're not licensed and you should always say no to them. You can find licensed taxis in the stands at the you know the airports and the main stations. And be aware that taxi fares into Paris from Orly and Charles de Gaulle Airport have fixed rates. You can also use Uber that exists in Paris. Uh, and there are also a couple of French alternatives that offer basically the same service. I find Heech is quite good, despite its ridiculous name. I think it's supposed to be someone saying Hitch in a French accent. Very annoying, but the service is good. And there's also one called Allo Cab. Right. Perhaps we should mention that other kind of incident that often gives Paris a bad name and, and uh, leads to people posing questions about whether they should visit. I'm talking about riots. Well, actual riots are quite rare. We had rioting over the summer and before that, the last sustained and nationwide outbreak of urban unrest was in 2005. So it's not like this is an everyday event. What we do have are lots of strikes, of course, and demos. Marches are usually quite well organised and the vast majority of protesters are peaceful. But I think it is still worth staying away from demo routes though because if there is trouble from a small minority the French police usually just spray tear gas everywhere which can be very unpleasant if you're caught up in it. Um, March routes are always published in advance so you kind of know which areas Mm. to avoid. Perhaps what tourists might notice the most about visiting Paris right now is probably what we notice uh, from living here is just the kind of general disruption the roadworks, some closures of metro lines, RER lines, works, upgrades going on at the moment. There's a lot going on. Um, Yeah, it does feel a bit like the whole city is a building site right now. There is a sort of a long ongoing project to transform Paris transport, adding more cycle routes, pedestrianising areas, that kind of thing. And there are also ongoing projects to extend uh, the metro and the tram lines further out of the city. I think the reason we're seeing so many at the moment is they're kind of scrambling to get as many finished as they possibly can for the Olympics. So we're probably going to be seeing a lot of disruption between now and the Olympics, but the works are going to be paused. So if you're visiting the summer during the Games. Okay, let's move to another part of France. How about Normandy? We talk about a lot about Normandy, but this week, It's specifically cheesemakers in Normandy. Jen, this is your subject. Tell us more. Basically, French cheesemakers recently won a battle with the EU. The gist is that the EU had adopted a bunch of new laws to reduce waste. And these are kind of similar to France's anti-waste laws. So the goal is to drop waste per household by 10% before 2030. 
In order to do that, they passed a regulation saying that materials that cannot be recycled shouldn't be used for packaging food and drink products, and that includes wood. So this is where the Norman cheesemakers come in. Camembert is traditionally sold in a circular wooden box, but the new rules, according to artisans, would have potentially forced them to change the appearance of their cheese. Plus, there were some concerns about using a more recyclable material like plastic would have stopped the cheese from being able to breathe, making it sweaty or flabby. Ooh, it's probably a good thing to stop camembert from breathing, isn't it? <laughs> I took some on the Eurostar recently, and it was a touch and go whether I'd actually make it the whole way. Carry on, Jen. So France's Europe minister actually ended up getting involved. Uh, she said that the measure risked inflaming the rural electorate just a few months ahead of next year's EU elections. Eventually, the European Commission acquiesced, and they gave an exception for AOP products where the packaging is part of the traditional recipe or serving of the product. And to make sure no one was upset, they also put out a press release titled, No, the European Commission does not want to ban camembert boxes. Excellent. Just on AOP products, Jen, remind us what they are again. Yeah. So basically, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but it's the protected status for certain agricultural products like cheese or wine that references the geographic area that they came from. So usually this also means that they're produced with a specific traditional know-how. So for the official Camembert de Normandie, it has to be made using unpasteurized milk and a certain percentage must come from cows that are grass-fed within Normandy. And some of the cows actually must be part of the Normand breed. Okay, now this isn't the first time that camembert cheesemakers have been involved in a row. No, there's been a huge discussion over years about this idea of an official camembert, Jen. Yeah, there's been a lot of controversy over who should get to call their cheese camembert de Normandie. So just a few years ago, a 12-year-long legal battle about the cheese finally ended, and it all came down to pasteurized versus unpasteurized milk, and you could say things got heated. So larger companies had been making their versions of camembert with pasteurized milk, mainly because it's easier to export to places like the U.S. that have strict health rules regarding pasteurization and dairy products. And they were calling it Fabriqué en Normandie, so made in Normandy. Local producers saw that title as misleading and way too close to their label, Camembert de Normandie. And so a compromise was introduced. Starting in 2021, the bigger companies making pasteurized Camembert would get to use that title, Camembert de Normandie, if they adhered to more standards, so a greater proportion of cows that are grazing in Normandy. And the small producers would call theirs true Camembert de Normandie. Cheese producers were not happy with this compromise, and more than 40 top French chefs, winemakers, and other cheese producers published an open letter calling on Macron to put a stop to this. Eventually, it was ruled that only raw milk cheese uh, made with the traditional techniques could be called Camembert de Normandie, but this hasn't really put an end to the other Camembert rela name-related legal fights. Just last year, there was a court case over a company that allegedly didn't use enough milk from cows from the actual Normandy region to make their cheese. Mm. This is the perfect moment to bring in John Litchfield, who just so happens combines expertise in both the EU and Camembert cheese, which is made not too far from where John lives in Normandy. John, the French Europe Minister seemed to get a little nervous by this camembert dispute. She said this is just the kind of thing to inflame the rural vote ahead of EU elections next year. Is France's pro-Europe government worried about anti-EU sentiment in rural France, John? Yeah, and not just in rural France. I think France 
generally, you know, France is a more Eurosceptic country, or part of France is more Eurosceptic than people perhaps imagine outside France. But rural France, well, I mean, it's, it's so ironic, isn't it? Because uh, you French farmers have, have benefited enormously from the European agricultural policy over the years, but they're constantly sort of disputing and angry with certain aspects and details of it. And at the moment, there's a campaign going on. I don't know, listeners may have seen in different parts of France that Young farmers, especially, have been creeping around at the dead of night and unscrewing village and town road signs and turning them upside down and leaving a sign by them saying, Nous marchons sur la tête, we're walking on our heads. And this is because they're angry with certain aspects of national and European farm policy, including plans to leave, I think it's only 4% of all farmland in France fallow this year uh, set aside, in which farmers get paid a certain amount not to use it so that surpluses don't build up. And also, there's a dispute about beef and other products coming in from South America under a new treaty that's under discussion. So, yeah, it's an issue in rural France, definitely the the EU. But farmers are now only quite a small minority of the population in rural France. So it's not something necessarily that angers or or affects many people in in rural France. But farmers are obviously a very sensitive, uh, romantic sort of vision of farmers in France. It's always something that all governments have to pay attention to. Let's talk. French culture, French films to be precise, and a new one that is hitting screens this week in France. The film is by acclaimed French director Laj Lee, and it's on the subject of Les Banlieues. Before we get into France's notorious banlieue, tell us about this film, Emma. Well, it's called Batiment 5, Building 5. And if you're in France, you'll probably have seen adverts for it on side of buses, billboards, whatever. Um, it's part of what is called uh, Lajli's Banlieue Triptyque, which also includes the Oscar-nominated 2019 film Les Miserables, which is not the musical, I should point out. It's very different to that. There's quite a big buzz about this film in France. And there's also a little bit of early Oscar buzz that I saw because Lajli is a big name. And on, for me, he is one of the most interesting directors working in France right now, partly because he has a great style. His films always look beautiful beautiful, but also just because he tells stories of a France that tends to be either demonised or ignored inside France and are really hardly known outside France, and that is Le Bonnier. I'm just going to bring in John Litchfield again here, because John, I believe you've got a good story about meeting Lajli in person. Well, 16 or 17 years ago, I used to, and I was still working for The Independent then, I did a lot of reportage in the the suburbs, um, in the Bonnier, the northern Bonnier of Paris, especially after the riots of 2005. And my photographer, when I went out there, was a young man called JR, who then was pretty well known photographer, since become an international superstar. And my fixer and minder was a young man called Laj Lee, who was sort of young amateur filmmaker in Montfermeil in the northern, far northern banlieue of Paris. And we used to go around talking to people and he would say, and I would say, well, why don't we go and talk to those young people over there? And he said, trop compliqué. And we would move on to speak to people that he felt a bit more likely to be friendly to us. So yeah, I do. I spent a lot of time with Lashley and I've been delighted to see how successful and how brilliant a filmmaker he's become. Okay, Emma, we hear this word banlieue a lot. It's well known. It's a well-known word in English now because of the number of times it's used in the Anglo media about stories on France. First of all, just tell us what banlieue actually means. Um, it means suburb. It's the areas on the outskirts of a town or city. We sort of first start to see these across the world, in fact, not just France, from about the 1860s when developments in public transport make commuting a possibility. And in fact, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, written in 1862, makes reference to the banlieue of Paris, including uh, Nanterre and Palisot. 
in admin terms, they're often not part of the same municipal area as the city. So like Paris technically doesn't include the suburbs. And I think it's often confusing for English speakers because in the Anglophone world, suburbs tend to be the affluent areas, whereas in France, it's the other way around. In the cities like Paris, Bordeaux, Lyon, the priciest property is always in the city centre. You know, they're beautiful centres, historic. And then the prices fall the further out you get. And the cheapest property is in the suburbs. Although there are obviously some exceptions, uh, especially in Paris, which has some very posh suburbs uh, to the west, like Neuilly-sur-Seine and Saint-Germain-en-Laye. And the other thing about the uh, the Bonnier is that they have a lot of residents. Here in Paris, there are 2.1 million people actually in the city of Paris. But there are 4.6 million people in the three départements that make up the inner suburbs. And then there's a further 6 million people who live in the outer suburbs. So actually, there are far more people in the Paris suburbs than there are in Paris itself. And it's a similar picture, although on a smaller scale with most of the other big cities. It's estimated that somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of the population in France live in a banlieue. And because of the population movement after World War II, a lot of the housing in these areas was built in the 50s and 60s. So they're often not the most beautiful. Lots of big concrete tower blocks that look kind of ugly and are also not in a good state of repair right now, which is part of what Ladgley's new film is all about. OK, so that's what bonlieu kind of means in a, in a geographical sense, but there's lots of connotations to the word, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the words bonlieu and bonliassade, which is someone who lives in the bonlieu, they're perfectly straightforward words, but they have a acquired this kind of secondary meaning as places that are socially deprived, crime-ridden, violent. And because of social inequalities, the Bonnier also tend to be the most racially mixed areas of France. So when you start talking about negative perceptions of the Bonnier, you often do get a lot of racism in that mix too. And I mean, undoubtedly, there are certain Bonnier that really are very deprived, especially on the outskirts of Paris and Marseille. Largely himself, he grew up in Montfermeil, which is a Paris Bonnier that's notoriously tough. But set against that, there are plenty of Bonnier that are lovely places, including the one where I live, which is why I'm very passionate about the Bonnier. Rent does tend to be a bit cheaper than the city centre and like most of them just have loads going on so you know there's lots of local markets independent traders atelier for local craftspeople, artistic offerings really good music in Paris we have a summer festival called Bonnier Blues which is a sort of a series of concerts that take place around the suburbs they're really vibrant and there's lots going on and I think most of them are, are great places. But the other thing that Bonnier are is indispensable to big cities. During the pandemic, when only essential workers were allowed to travel, it was really noticeable that travel patterns into Paris from the Bonnier were the ones that were least affected. And that's because a lot of the people who were doing the vital work to keep the capital going, you know, the nurses, the hospital auxiliaries, the street cleaners, the supermarket workers, they were low paid. So they were travelling in from the cheaper places in the Bonnier. So your posh cities, you need Bonnier dwellers like me. Let's bring in John again. John, do you think people get the wrong impression of France's banlieue? Are they all poor, crime-ridden tinderboxes ready to go off at any moment? Oh, it's, you know, it, it, this is something that angers me and something that I think the French media doesn't concentrate on enough. Of course, that is true, you know, and we saw that in July, August, that uh, every so often there are explosions of anger in the banlieue, and all the time there is sort of not low level, but a quite high level of crime and violence, mostly between the, the, the young people who live in the banlieue themselves. All of that is true, but there is, you know, a whole other world of the banlieue out there, a world of energy, hard work, creativity, and largely, in a way, is, is a good example of that, of, of the, the talent that comes from the, the banlieue. We tend to think of the footballing talent now, often the rugby talent, actually, that comes out of those places. And we see you see that, but that's true in many other areas as well. And I think when France was 
lockdown through the COVID periods, who came in and kept Paris and other big cities going? It was people from the Bonnier, you know, that it is an, are an essential, hardworking part of France to a large extent. And that aspect of the Bonnier is not spoken of enough. Thanks, John. And thanks, Emma. And just a reminder, Batiment 5, Batiment 5, I should say, is in cinemas in France right now. Now, when it comes to tired cliches about countries and their natives, I doubt any nation is subject to more stereotypes than the French. Often, everything people initially thought about the French is proved wrong when you get to know the country more or even look at the real stats. Well, in many cases anyway. So let's run through a few and try and bust or back up a few myths about the French. Jen, you're going to start us off. Fact or fiction? All French women are thin. Definitely fiction. Uh, when I first moved, and this was about four and a half years ago, so many people came up to me and told me that I had to keep in mind that the sizes of clothes in France were different than in the U.S. So the idea that a small in the U.S. would actually be a medium in France, based on this assumption that French women are just naturally very thin. Usually the other thing that goes hand in hand with that stereotype is that said French women, um, should we say Parisian women, because usually the stereotype seems to always assume that French women live in Paris, can eat a stereotypical French diet. So let's say lots of butter, meat, carbs, and red wine, and never gain any weight. In reality, French people are overweight too. As of 2020, 47% of French adults were considered to be overweight. And among women, 17.4% were considered to be obese. And obesity is something that's been rising in France as well. Since 1997, obesity amongst 18 to 24-year-olds has gone up fourfold. So no, French women are not all thin. (laughs) Just back to the stereotype, Jen, there's usually this kind of image that comes to mind of the thin white woman with red lipstick and stylish yet classy outfit or slightly messy hair that still looks good, no? Yeah, and and there's been a lot of pushback against this cliche in recent years, particularly from French women themselves who are tired of being typecast. In 2019, the Franco-British journalist Alice Pfeffer uh, wrote a book called Je ne suis pas parisienne, I am not a Parisian woman, uh, to unpack the myths about Paris women. And in her view, part of the issue is that people wrongly tend to see Parisian women as a monolith, so always imagining them as white and upper class. In reality, the city is one of the most diverse in the world, which was the subject of a documentary by another French journalist, Rocaille Diallo, called La Parisienne Demystifiée, which is really good. You should watch it if you get the chance. And she interviews tons of different Parisian women, many of whom are not white or well-off, including Grace Lee, her partner in the podcast Kif Taras, and Alice Coffin, a Green Party politician and lesbian activist, and Elisa Rojas, a Franco-Chilean lawyer who's focused on defending the rights of people with disabilities. So definitely um, French women, Parisian women from all different backgrounds. Where does she think this stereotype comes from? Then? Well, there are a lot of different theories. So for Anglophones, a big part of our exposure to French culture was from new wave French cinema. And this presented us with a lot of stylish, thin, conventionally beautiful French women. Giallo also spoke with historians who explained that the stereotype comes from the male imagination. So we see this idealized version of French women in literature all the way back to Rousseau. But maybe the biggest place that we currently see this image of the thin Parisian woman uh, nowadays is in advertising, particularly for cosmetics and tourism. We still see it being used. Uh, so if you think about shows like Emily in Paris, there's a goal of selling this idealized version of the city. And along with that, we get the idealized version of French women. 
Okay, let's move on to the next one. What about the cliche that French people only eat and drink in moderation, steering clear from unhealthy fast food and no binge drinking, right? They just live on a healthy diet of boeuf bourguignon, frog's legs, snails and croissants, Jen. Okay, so first I have to address the snails and frog's please legs. Please do, please do. So you might not be entirely wrong about snails. Ben, how many snails do you think the average French person eats per year? Based on the average French person that I know, I would say one. Uh, no, no, not quite. It actually ends up to being about 6.5 snails per year, right. um, which to be fair, snails usually come in a serving of like six to 12. So you would say it's about one serving per year. In total, France eats about 30,000 tons of snails per year, but the majority of them are imported. And as for frog legs, the answer is a lot lower. Do you want to guess uh, how many tons of frog legs French people eat per year? I have no idea, but I'm just going to say something like 4,000 tons. <laughs> okay, you read you read my notes. <laughs> the French do consume 4,000 tons. That sounds like a lot, but put it in context for us, Jen. Yeah, so in context, uh, the French consume 850,000 tons of cheese per right. year. So uh, they're not eating frog legs like they're eating cheese. Emma, you like a frog's leg or a snail? I've actually never had frog's legs. You don't, you don't really see them anywhere apart from the Northeast. They're, mm. they're certainly not a thing in Paris and definitely not in the Southwest. We're all about foie gras down there. I do quite like a snail, though. Although, I don't know, do I like oh, snail? No, no. Yeah, or do I just like garlic butter? Because the exactly. thing about snails is they're served mm. in like lashings of delicious, hot, garlicky butter. And I think most things taste good in garlic butter, no? Yeah, I think whenever you hear the French talk about snails, those who like them basically admit to liking the garlic butter. I went to a frog's legs restaurant in Paris, actually. I don't know if it still exists, but they invited us down to try their frog's legs. And I think we ate about a thousand of those 4,000 tons. <laughs> Because there's so little meat on them. You have to go through so many to kind of get the meat off. I mean, they tasted great. They were cooked in all kinds of different sauces. But yeah, it was a lot of scrapping around, like pulling meat off the legs. So yeah, it doesn't surprise me that, that not many are eaten in France. Thanks for clearing that up, Jen. What about this healthy diet in France? Surely there's no space for fast food. That's what I want to know. Well, we tend to assume this because we associate the French approach to food to be very quality over quantity. So smaller portions or shopping at the marché to get your fresh or locally sourced ingredients. But French people actually love fast food. There are 52,500 fast food restaurants in the country, and that has been growing. So 20 years ago, there were just 13,000. And as of 2019, 16% of French people said that they regularly ate fast food. When it comes to McDonald's, France is one of the company's biggest markets, and it's in the top five countries in the world with the highest number of McDonald's restaurants. And then there are French tacos. And I should say, these are a distinctly French fast food. So don't think of the Mexican taco. These tacos are kind of like a panini burrito kebab mix. And sometimes they have meat, sauce, French fries, cheese, lots of stuff mixed in there. And on average, they weigh in at 1,348 calories per French tacos. An extra, extra large can run you up to 2,300 calories, though. That sounds so unfrench. Yeah. I, <laughs> but people love them, and there are tacos restaurants all over the place. I will say, though, that part of this stereotype is true. So snacking of the healthy French diet. Snacking throughout the day is not super common in France. There's still a big importance placed on sitting down for meals together as a family. And, and snack time is pretty much just for kids. So they get biscuits or chocolate during goûter, which is the late afternoon snack after school. Interesting stuff. Thanks, Jen. Uh, Emma, I'm going to put this one to you. French men are all cheating on their wives. True, <laughs> false? <laughs> well, that's the stereotype for sure. It's not actually that easy to get hard data on adultery since, obviously, it's a secret. I did manage to find an IFOP study from 2019 
that showed that 37% of French women and 49% of French men admitted to having cheated on at least one partner. Sounds um, high. It does sound quite high, doesn't it? When you look at sort of global infidelity rankings, France usually comes close to the top. But I did find some other studies that said that Thai men, Germans, Danes, Americans and Italians are more disloyal. But I think you have to take all of these with a pinch of salt because it's all just self-reporting and, you know, some cultures are more open to admitting adultery than others. So it's kind of hard to say. So so it's not really super clear that French men do actually cheat any more than any other men. But I think the reasons for this stereotype are twofold. I think firstly, it's this idea of French men being particularly romantic and sexy. And secondly, there's a sort of traditional license that was given to prominent men in France who were unfaithful, especially presidents, where you had these kind of situations where the media were actually actively covering up stories of adultery and bad behaviour from prominent men. The romantic and the sexy stereotype, we've actually talked about on this podcast before. We had a really good special guest, a UK-based French academic called Emile Chabal, who kind of deconstructed it for us. And you can find him in the February 2nd episode. I really recommend listening to him. He's very interesting. But he basically told us that this image uh, of the sort of romantic French was largely a post-war creation. And it's something that France has quite cynically leaned into in order to market everything from tourism to luxury goods to even cars. The idea of powerful men being able to get away with adultery, I think it's interesting because it's something we've really seen change just over the last decade or so. Most people will recall President Francois Hollande's adultery with the actress Julie Gaillet. And the reason you know about it is because it was exposed in a French gossip magazine, complete with photos of Hollande on the back of a scooter on his way to Trists. Very undignified for him. But I mean, when you look back at uh, President Jacques Chirac, for example, a notorious womanizer, or Francois Mitterrand, who actually had a secret daughter with his mistress, in that case, the French media all knew about it. They were just keeping it secret. But I think times have changed since then. Yeah, you mentioned the presidents. I remember there, there was a, a story, there was a bit of a scandal when a, I think it was an extramarital dating site, Ashley Madison, put up some a big campaign and it had a picture of France's four recent presidents before Macron, I should say, and just saying, what do they all have in common? You know, I'd basically, they all cheated on their wives. But do you think, you know, you mentioned Holland there and the reaction to Holland and Julie Gay's affair. Do you think things have changed, Emma, in the way these kind of things are reported? I think things have changed, yes, absolutely. I think it's partly to do with the growth of online media and social media so that newspapers can't just like act as gatekeepers in that way anymore. But I think it's also the growing feminist movement which means that powerful men can no longer act with such total impunity anymore. I think the Dominique Strauss-Kahn affair in 2011 was quite important because, I mean, he was a man who certainly had a reputation as a womanizer, which the media kept quiet about. But then it kind of turned out that his behaviour was a lot more sinister than simple adultery. And I think one thing that was a watershed moment was the Griveaux affair. You might remember that in 2020. He was a candidate in the Paris mayoral election and he was forced to step down when it was revealed via a sex tape that he'd been having an affair behind his wife's back. And in that case, there was no suggestion that like any sexual offences had been committed or anything criminal. There wasn't an, any sort of abuse of power. It was a simple case of adultery. He was cheating on his wife with another woman. But nonetheless, it was revealed by French media and he was forced out of the election race because of it. So I think if French men really do cheat any more than any other men, they're probably less likely to be getting away with it these days. Okay. One of the French words for cheating or having an extramarital affair is an aventure extra-conjugal, like an extramarital adventure, which makes it sound really innocent and fun, no? 
Maybe uh, that's the reason. Yeah, maybe. Just well, the language problem. Well, I mean, the word aventure is kind of a, it's a it's a for me that yeah. you know it can mean an adventure, but it more usually means an affair, and mm. it's the cause of much embarrassment among many new arrivals in Paris who sort of innocently arrived. Oh, I've come to Paris to have an adventure. Yeah. <laughs> Accidentally telling everyone that you're really in the market. And they get for an a really affair. warm welcome. <laughs> right. Okay. On to the last one. The French are a nation of hypochondriacs, Emma. Now. I have to admit, until I started researching this section for the podcast, I would have absolutely said that this one is true. I do find that the French are very kind of interested in health, you know. They go to the doctor a lot. There's a lot of conversation about health. People recommend doctors, like restaurant recommendations, pharmacies everywhere. But I'm wrong. The OECD data has proved me wrong. The average French person has six medical consultations per year, which is fractionally lower than the EU average of seven per year, and actually half the number of worldly being hypochondriacs, Japan, Hungary, and the Czech Republic. French people come out with pharmacies, you know, with Santa sacks full of pills and ointments. And when you go in French bathrooms, obviously it's like, you know, you open the cabinet and it's like a mini pharmacy in there. There must be something in this cliche that's true. Um, Yeah, I do find a couple of things to sort of back up my thesis. Um, The French are, as you mentioned, a heavily medicated lot. Data from 2019 shows that 90% of doctor's appointments result in a prescription. Mm. And there's an average of 5.5 drugs prescribed per visit, which is significantly higher than the European average. Yes, they they do take a lot of medication. Mm. There was also a study that showed that 20% of patients in France to admitted have like pressurising their doctor to prescribe for them, especially painkillers and anti-inflammatories. And of course, one thing I think it's worth mentioning is that um, prescriptions are largely either free or mostly reimbursed by the state. So like, there isn't a financial barrier to getting medication from just, your doctor. Just on the, is it true they always ask for suppositories? <laughs> there is a reputation though. There is something cliche there about French and suppositories, isn't there? Um, yeah, I think suppositories may be a little bit more common in no, yeah. France, but I couldn't really find any data that showed that they're significantly more more used in France. So I think that's maybe just something that the, the English are strangely obsessed by. Yeah. It might be something that says more about us than about the French, <laughs> in all honesty. Um, I mean, I think the... The pharmacies can partly be explained by the actual, there are laws that give pharmacies monopoly on selling mm. over-the-counter medications. So things like headache tablets, uh, cold and flu remedies yeah. that in other countries you can buy in supermarkets, yeah. you can yeah. only buy in pharmacies. Yeah. You can't in, get no? ibuprofen in Monopoly, can you? Exactly, yeah. Um, pharmacies also sell a lot of herbal remedies and homeopathic treatments, and they're mm. very popular. Um, the French are among the highest consumers of homeopathic remedies in Europe. So there's that with it too. And I have to end this segment, of course, with the Frenchest ailment of them all, uh, les jambes lourdes. Ah, les jambes lourdes. Heavy legs, yeah. Heavy legs. I know, yes. I've heard about. I've heard people complain about this. Go on. Uh, yeah, as far as I'm aware, this ailment only exists in France. Mm. Uh, but when the summer comes around, you'll see adverts absolutely everywhere for heavy leg treatments. <laughs> <laughs> what does that involve? <laughs> Well, a lot of them are just like compression socks, but like right. pharmacies have all these herbal remedies that claim to cure heavy legs. Uh, one time I was just at the market buying some like nice sea salt and she was like, oh, I've got some sea salt mixed with herbs here that'll cure heavy legs if you want to. Yeah, chair helps, I find. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure whether to be insulted as to whether yeah. my legs look particularly What heavy. is heavy legs? Well, Do we it's, know? It's really more of like a symptom than an illness itself. Um, it affects women more than men and it's worse in hot weather, but it's basically just the sensation of having swollen feet or swollen ankles or itchy, prickly or numb legs, things that are associated with bad circulation. And I mean, these obviously exist all around the world, but it seems like only the French have a special name for it. Fantastic. Thanks, Jen and Emma, for clearing up those cliches about the French. Now, Christmas is around the corner. Let's have a look at how the French do things compared to other countries. 
Jen, you're going to start us off with money. Are the French big spenders when it comes to Christmas presents? Well, not really in comparison to Brits and Americans. So the French are expected to spend 332 euro on gifts this year. And actually, that's expected to be 22 euro less than last year. As for Brits and Americans, Brits are expected to spend an average of 602 pounds this year on Christmas gifts, which would represent an increase from last year, which was 429 pounds in 2022. And Americans spent $920 on gifts alone last year. So no, uh, when we compare the French uh, with the Brits and the Americans, they are not big spenders on Christmas presents. No, that certainly chimes with my own experience. What about booze? Emma, drunken office parties, Christmas Eve in the pub, that's kind of something that we're probably used to in the UK. Is Christmas in France all about getting drunk? No, not not so much. Um, I mean, you'll probably be invited to the a few apoho or Christmas drinks, maybe a party, but it's not like the UK where people basically just drink for the entire month of December. Mm. Uh, I think in France, Christmas is seen as more of like a family event and then New Year is more of the party season. Although even that is quite restrained, certainly in comparison to Scotland where they go mental for New Year. The French do drink, obviously. Certainly you'll, around this time of year, you'll see the, the calf, the wine calves and supermarkets stocking up. Plenty of people like to buy you know, a few special bottles to go with their Christmas dinner. There's a lot of champagne drunk, especially on New Year. Mm. In fact, in 2022, that was a record-breaking year for alcohol sales over Christmas in France, probably because the previous years we'd all been under COVID restrictions. But a study that year by Caviste found that on average, French people drink 3.6 glasses of wine per person over the holidays, which I don't know, in the UK, we just call that breakfast, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's start, I mean, let's do some comparisons. Let's, you know, some of the traditions that we've got in, in the UK, do they have them in France or, or in the US? If I turned up in a French bar with a bit of mistletoe over Christmas and asked for a smoochie, what, what's going to happen to me? Pretty much the same as what would happen to you in England. <laughs> I think you get, get slapped, right. Yes. <laughs> What about Christmas crackers? Do they do them here? No, they don't. This is the one thing that I import from uh, yeah. from the UK because I, I do like a cracker at Christmas. Not yeah. a thing in France. And th- yeah, there are certain traditions that the French could learn from. Christmas crackers is an innocent one. You know, getting the getting everyone wearing a Christmas hat for Christmas dinner. What about Christmas Eve food? They do things slightly differently. Jen, this is one of your favourites, is it? Yeah, it is. Um, French people love to have like a seafood platter. And that's just a mix of everything. Like uh, sometimes if you're really fancy, you'll get some lobster in there, but definitely uh, some crab and some shrimp and things like that. It's really tasty. Mm. Uh, and it's it's actually like a pretty quick and easy way to have a big meal with a lot of people. So mm. I, I really like it. And my partner's family is from the coast. So the food's nice and fresh. Mm. It's called the réveillon. Is that right? The Christmas Eve meal? Uh, yeah, yeah, the the awakening, because traditionally you had it, you would go as a family to midnight mass and then you would have it afterwards. So you'd start eating at like midnight or one in the morning. I think fewer and fewer people do that these days. But mm. yes. And what about Christmas dinner? Like, do, do the French go for birds on Christmas Day? Turkeys? <laughs> I say that Country. because... Yeah, I say that because I was once served up a different... It was some kind of bird. I think it was crow or something on Christmas Day. It definitely wasn't turkey. It wasn't crow. It was a posh bird, but... Do they do they do turkey like we do? Uh, turkeys, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think roasted poultry is kind of the most mm. common meal for Christmas. Yeah, turkey, goose, duck, guinea fowl, right. anything like that. But it's kind of it's a lot less of a, a set thing, and like a lot of families just have what they want on Christmas. Uh, Brussels sprouts, which is the sort of traditional English accompaniment, like they're on sale all over the winter because they're a seasonal vegetable, but they have no connection with Christmas in France whatsoever. I always find Christmas in France it often kind of peters out in the afternoon of Christmas Day. You know, Christmas Eve's big, Christmas lunch is big, but later on on Christmas Day, it kind of peters out. And that's because 
The next day isn't a bank holiday. No, no, the 26th is a normal working day, apart from the lucky mm. people up in Alsace-Lorraine who get the extra day off for St. Stephen's Day, as it technically is. Okay, Emma, any favourite French Christmas traditions, French music at Christmas? Perhaps. Uh, Does it exist? <laughs> well, I was wondering this just the other day because you do hear like Christmas songs, but they really tend to play like English language Christmas songs. So the same ones that we have. And I, so I was thinking, I wonder why. So I downloaded a, a playlist of like, you know, famous French Christmas mm. songs and they're really not very good. So I think we've solved that mystery, which is that French Christmas songs are a bit rubbish. I did find one from Carla Bruni, wife of ex-president Nicolas Sarkozy, singing a sort of sexy jazz classic about a jolie sapin, a pretty Christmas tree. It was very strange. Okay, fantastic. You guys staying in France for Christmas? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'll be... Uh, You'll both I'll be, be having a French Christmas? Lunch. Yep, absolutely. Fantastic. Okay, that wraps us up and that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. Thanks to everybody for tuning in and we'll be back with more next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.